my third week in Vietnam, we were overrun at a place called Alpha North. The first thing I thought was, I'm in a place where it's people's job to kill me, and they're allowed to do that. And I can't say, time out, King's X, give me a second chance. I, along with the American public, had been misled, and this war was wrong. They gave me a medal for serving over there, and I said, here, take a decision back. was made that last day, we're going to form a national organization, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. guys really didn't do anything. They just wanted to demonstrate against the war. They didn't want to shoot anybody or blow up anything. Well, I think there was a mood at the time that some of the people that opposed the war were going to Canada, or they were hippies that, you know, they were cowards or whatever. And the VBAW, these guys were over there and they got shot at and they, they shot back and they were combat veterans and they were gaining a lot of credibility. Hello, my name is John Paul Laurier and welcome back to the final part of this three-part podcast series on the Gains of the Late brought to you by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Founded in 1967, the program has developed into one of the largest oral history archives in the nation with more than 6,000 interviews. We are dedicated to gathering, preserving, and promoting histories from all walks of life. One community, many voices. We have been following Scott Camille, who like so many others went to Vietnam to serve his country only to return and realize that his service and sacrifice was a lie. A lie so strong that Scott and many other vets felt compelled to tell the world the truth. Thus, the formation of the Vietnam Veterans Against War. We last left off with the VVAW's growth and the government's reaction to it. We were highly infiltrated, and so we started getting um, intelligence from members, and those members turned out to be undercover agents, whose job it was to get us to do something illegal so we could be busted and our credibility could be hurt. It was really all about our credibility. Until there was Vietnam Veterans Against the War, there'd be demonstrators and the government would say, they're just draft dodgers. They're commie sympathizers. They're cowards not willing to serve their country. They don't know what they're talking about, but they couldn't say that about us. So they had to discredit us a different way. The ways in which the government tried to discredit the VVAW were by provoking them into breaking the law or becoming violent. Richard Hudgens, one of the original VVAW members to be recruited through the Playboy article, recalled a specific example of this. So another guy knew, he says, hey, you know what, we've just had a report that, uh, that, they got, that the government put some paid uh, agitators into the crowd to try to incite a riot. And he, and he holds me a, a picture with a black and white, like a photocopy, of, of three or four four pictures of guys. So here I am looking at this picture <laughs> and it, over there about 20 feet off to my right, somebody's yelling, kill the pigs, kill the pig with his raising his fist like this. And I look over there and that's one of the guys on the picture. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I, I about fell over backwards. It was that, it was, he was one of the guys. His, here I had his picture right there. It was the funny, I, I couldn't believe that. I'll never forget that experience. And here he was, and he was he was yelling like, "Kill the pigs, let's off the pigs," and raising his arm, flailing about, and nobody else was sort of looking at him. <laughs> the VVAW had become aware of the fact that they were infiltrated. To what extent they still did not know, but that was not going to stop these veterans from speaking their mind. And that's where the events of the trial to Gainesville Eight start, with the 1972 Republican National Convention in Miami Beach, Florida. 
Because of the way the VVAW organized itself nationwide, Scott found himself in charge of organizing the protest of the RNC and President Richard Nixon himself. As um, um, intelligence information was presented to us about things that would happen at the convention, it was my job to make contingency plans for those problems. So one of the pieces of information that I received from William Limmer, who turned out to be working for the FBI, was that the government was going to shoot someone at the convention and that they were going to blame it on the demonstrators and that they were going to raise the five drawbridges that connect Miami Beach to the mainland and that they were going to wipe out the demonstrators on the beach under the guise that they, that they fired first at, at people um, in the convention. So as soon as we got that information, well, what are we going to do if they do that? So I made contingency plans for that. And, and so among those contingency plans, it called for taking those five drawbridges, lowering those drawbridges, and blowing up the mechanisms so people would have an avenue of escape. I was um, in the Marine Corps. I was riot control MCO for the 10th Marine Regiment. And we were taught that you always leave the people an avenue of escape. If you box them in, they'll have to fight. And your job is not to escalate fighting, but to control the crowd and defuse things. So as soon as we got this information that they're going to raise the drawbridges and that they're going to do this, it became obvious that they didn't want a peaceful settlement. We didn't have a strong enough force to fight them off with arms. So we had to figure something else to do. So my plan was to um, attack um, um, police stations, fire stations, and federal buildings in Dade County and Broward County. And the purpose of those attacks would be not to harm people, but to cause diversionary, um, we call them diversionary actions. And what that would do would be all of the forces that are um, um, trying to wipe out the demonstrators on Miami Beach are now going to have to leave Miami Beach and they're going to have to go protect their towns, their cities, their fire stations, their police stations, their federal buildings. And, and, and then we would be able to get in and evacuate the wounded people and evacuate our people. So that's what the plans were called for. I wrote the plans and on every fucking line it said this will be done for defensive purposes only, for defensive purposes only. In the Gainesville 8 case, we were charged with conspiracy to use violence to disrupt the convention. The jury got to read those plans. The plans said self-defense. However, these plans were never carried out. The FBI, who had infiltrated the group and been surveying them for some time, moved in. I had no clue what was happening. A friend of mine needed to go to New York, New York City, and he asked me if I would take him there in my car, and we'd only be there for the weekend and come right back. I said, sure. So um, we go to New York, he does whatever he's doing, we get back in the car, and he's got two lady friends with him. We drive back to St. Pete, and um, one of the girls is going to stay at my house. Well, come to find out, she's uh, 16. And that's when the FBI arrived at my door with a subpoena. And I thought, I've just transported a minor across five or six state lines. Oh, I'm dead. And they gave me the subpoena. And I had no idea. I, I thought it was, you know, that I had they'd been watching me and they, they finally found me doing something. But that wasn't it at all. 
I called Scott in Gainesville, and he said, well, you're the 15th person that's called in. So that was the beginning. That was just John Chambers, who, although was not one of the final Gainesville 8, was one of the 23 who was subpoenaed in relation to the conspiracy. However, he was one of the veterans who refused to cooperate, landing him more than a month in prison. And so over 20 members of the VVAW were subpoenaed, and the trial of veterans versus government began. This trial was a big deal for the small city of Gainesville, which wasn't used to being in the national spotlight. Lois Hensel, a juror of the trial who later wrote an article for the Floridian, said, quote, Gainesville had never seen anything like this trial. Apart from Scott, who represented himself, the Gainesville 8 were represented by a few attorneys, including Brady Coleman. When you really realized at the certain point you were coming to Gainesville, how did you prepare for this, this case? I mean, you're going up against the United States government, and, and initially it seemed like, did you ever feel like, wow, we're really kind of outgunned here? Or did you? Um, I think we definitely uh, had a feeling that this was the biggest case we were ever going to be in, or at least up until that point. So we were we were drawn into it. I mean, we were going to Pensacola for pre-trials, and, and we were going up to New York to meet with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, Miami, we went to, for some reason, and Gainesville for pre-trials. Uh, so we were ready when the time came. We knew this was a big case, and we were a small, radical movement law firm, three lawyers, and we weren't making any money, for sure. They were very kind to us here, and Gainesville gave us a place to stay and fed us and whatnot. But, I mean, it wasn't like we were getting a big fee or anything, you know, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't care. We wanted to do what was right. Yeah. We stuck with it. As time went on, uh, it became pretty clear to me that the government didn't have jack shit for a case. And uh, that gives you a lot of confidence. And I didn't, wasn't that impressed with the prosecution, to tell you the truth. I thought the judge was uh, pretty much prosecution oriented, but yeah. I, I didn't, I felt real good about it. The witnesses testified one by one, first for the prosecution and then cross-examined by the defense. Some witnesses would look jurors in the face. Others did anything to avoid eye contact. My seat was so close to the witness chair that I could see the pounding pulse of some. One witness was so unsure of himself, he had to read his testimony. I found some witnesses very believable, but others contradicted themselves and other witnesses. One man was a whiz at minor dates and details of two-year-old incidents, but when cross-examined, couldn't remember a thing. Was it just my imagination about that one government witness, or did he answer, I don't recall? On cross-examination, each time the prosecuting attorney touched his head with his fingers. Had other jurors noticed this coincidence? It seemed obvious. Unbeknownst to the jury, the government was being deceitful. Two agents were caught spying on the defense as they worked in their private room with their attorneys in the courthouse. In the courthouse, across from the courtroom where the trial took place, were other offices. 
And um, the FBI had an office in the building. Um, the state attorney had an office in the building. The judge gave us an office so we could meet with our attorneys. So, like, things would be going on. There would be a recess. We would The lawyers would ask for time to consult with us before they would make a, a decision about something. So they gave us this room um, across from the courtroom um, that we could work in. One day, we're in that room discussing stuff with our lawyers, and somebody heard a noise. And there was a, a locked closet in that room, but the locked closet had metal louver vent, a vent um, at the bottom of the door that you see sometimes where there's air conditioners. So um, Stanley, one of the defendants, he looked through those louvers, and he saw two feet. So he immediately went and got the marshals. The marshals came. They unlocked that door and they found two FBI agents with recording equipment in the fucking closet um, in the room that the judge had given us to be able to talk honestly with our lawyers in private. So we immediately um, raised hell and there was a, a hearing and um, um, at the hearing we complained that this was a violation of our rights, um, that the government was monitoring our discussions with our lawyers. The FBI agents were put on the stand, and the FBI agents said they weren't paying any attention to what was going on in the room with us and our lawyers, and that closet was a telephone relay closet that had lines um, to all of the phones in the federal building according to these FBI agents, and that they were there to protect those lines from us. The judge ruled that there had been no violation of our defense um, camp, and the judge um, attacked us as making a mountain out of a molehill. And he just dismissed it. You know, he couldn't declare a mistrial. We've been messing with this thing for 13 months, you know, and, and we were probably two weeks into the trial. So he said, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. And so that was the end of that. But we, we knew that <laughs> they were spying on us. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. This was not the only deception the government played as well. Over the course of the trial, other VVAW members would be outed as undercover government agents, including some who had been charged alongside Scott and the other veterans. The defense fought against these actions, bringing them all the way to the Supreme Court, However, it was never recognized as something that hindered the defense of the veterans, and so this deception was disregarded by the court. But after the government finished their case, uh, they haven't proven the case. We don't need to do anything. They, they've failed. And I think it was a good decision because if you start putting people on the stand or, or something, it can backfire. So uh, we, we, we closed. We didn't put on any evidence. Said defense rests. Move to final argument. So, during the prosecution's closing address, I felt I was being harangued, preached to, yelled at. I resented their calling the defendants criminals in this statement. Wasn't that supposed to be determined by the jury? The defense made a much better impression. They seemed real and honest in their statements. The closing statement of Scott Camille who had chosen to represent himself, really hit home. Is 1984 so far away, he asked? I think we had a, a thinking jury, and I think they just said the government, they've just blown this thing way out of shape. 
that these guys really didn't do anything. They just wanted to demonstrate against the war. They didn't want to shoot anybody or blow up anything. And uh, so I think it was a good, good jury and a good decision not to, uh, not to put on any evidence, no, no necessity for it. And then, in an unusually short four hours, the jury returned and pronounced the Gainesville 8 not guilty. Well, in our trial, the jury, the, the, the prosecutor put on his case, then the defense said, you haven't proven jack shit, we rest, without putting on the defense. After a 30-day federal trial, and the jury comes back in four hours not guilty. Um, so that's a, a, a very strong statement on the prosecution's case. Uh, verdicts came back, boy, there's a lot of joy out there, inside the courtroom and outside. I mean, just not some guy having to go to the joint. I mean, that's enough to scream and rave about, but uh, it just, as I say, it just gave affirmation to the whole anti-war movement and the fact that this war was wrong. And it had been going on for a long time. We're talking about 1973. So we're not, we're not in 67, 68, that people were really getting weary of the Vietnam. And this is just another, you know, stroke. For the jury to come back and say not guilty, that said to me, the community supports what you're doing. They believe in you and they support what you're doing. So that was great. What can we take from the Gainesville 8 as a society? What lessons can we take from that? Well, I think being a good citizen means being an active citizen. And I would say the number one responsibility of the citizen in a democracy is to control their government. That's their number one responsibility. Our citizens are derelict in their duty. They are not controlling the government. In 2013, 40 years after the trial, some of those involved with the Gainesville 8 had a reunion. In his article for the Gainesville Sun, Ron Cunningham wrote about the event and Scott Camille. Camille's post-trial reflection is one of quiet introspection, mixed with nagging doubt. Was it worth it, he pondered, his youthful voice reaching out over the decades? Was it really worth trying to educate people and being beaten on the head with clubs, and being thrown in jail, and having police bust into your homes? There's an old adage, ignorance is bliss, he continues, and I guess that's really true. Is it worth it? Ask Scott Camille that question today, and any lingering doubt has vanished. I'm very proud of what I've done, my activism, he says. I'm just sad that our government is still telling the same lies to justify war. Another war, another conspiracy for peace. Same old Scott Camille. For more information about this segment and our other collections, please visit our website, oral.history.ufl.edu. My name is John Paul Laurier, and thank you for joining us.